Welcome to Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals, hosted by certified financial planners Justin Brownlee and Jared Machen of Brownlee Wealth Management. The only podcast dedicated to those of you in the oil and gas profession to help you optimize investments, lower future taxes, and grow your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Welcome back to another episode of FPOG, Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals. This week on the podcast, we are talking about year-end planning. We'll kind of parse this up into two categories. What what action needs to be taken towards year close to year-end? Uh, and then another bucket of what action do people think they need to act on year-end? And it's actually not that sensitive. Uh, and then we'll wrap up the conversation with uh, how to ensure that you have a relationship with your CPA to ensure that the recommendations and the plans and strategies you make actually get reflected on your tax return. Um, Justin, you want to kick us off and start us, you know, at a high level, just talking about what some of the topics are we're going to be talking about related to year-end planning. Absolutely. Okay, so I'm just going to give a rundown of everything we will cover. So charitable giving, um, we'll start with that. Charitable giving will also coincide with uh, property tax. Uh, when you pay your property tax, some of you may escrow and you know you slowly pay your property tax over the course of the year. Um, but if you pay your property tax all at once, there is a potential planning opportunity there as well as charitable giving. The other side of giving that we could discuss is any giving to family members. There is an annual limit on uh, how much how much you give to family members. Next up, uh, Roth conversions. We'll also talk a little bit about funding um, employee retirement plans, 401ks, also self-employed plans. There are some uh, limits there, both on the employer and employee side. Uh, we'll also touch on backdoor Roth, talk a little bit about pro rata rules, some of the considerations there. Then we'll also hit on regular IRA as well as HSA, so some different qualified plans, and then we'll also talk a little bit about uh, communicating with your CPA, making sure you're on the same page. So I think that is a pretty comprehensive list of year-end planning opportunities. Jared, anything to add to that or can we dive in? Let's dive in. But before, I guess one caveat, one, I guess, context setting thing, like good planning at the year end is basically taking inventory, right? So there's a bunch of different strategies you can use and whether you accelerate them or decelerate them really is a function of, okay, thinking about optimizing your lifetime tax rate, right? So, you know, now's a great time to be taking inventory before implementing any of these strategies. Okay. What does my tax picture look like this year? And what will it look like next year? Um, if there's a big delta between those two numbers, it can make a lot of sense to uh, accelerate some of the strategies and things you're potentially considering. Because right, one of the big things we're focused on is optimizing your lifetime tax rate. So that's something that you need to think about. And then so I, I would even say, we, we could parse this out as we start talking about the specifics, but some things are use it or lose it. So what I mean by that is uh, if you do not make 2022 Roth contribution or IRA contributions, you cannot, you know, you never have that opportunity again, right? Like if 2023 income, you can't just, you can't go back and, and convert like it, it, those 0%, 10%, 12%, lo- those low tax brackets. If you don't use those up and fill those with income, it's kind of a, a use it or lose it, take advantage or not. So there's varying levels of urgency uh, related to the strategies and depending on um, you know what your tax situation looks like. So Justin, with all that context, let's dive in. Perfect. And I think we can start with time sensitive. So for the most part, Jared, we're really saying that the due date on this planning opportunity is is December 31st. 
of this year. Um, and which of those should we tackle first? Let's talk about the lowest hanging fruit, which is fully funding your uh, retirement plan. So this is different than the IRA, and we'll talk about this a little later on, but your employer-sponsored retirement plan. So you want to make sure that you set your contribution percentage to an amount where you fully contribute the maximum. And there's a catch-up contribution if you're over age 50, so be mindful of that as well. So just make sure it's easy to, easy to look, just check a pay stub, but that's low hanging fruit. You want to make sure you're maximizing your employer contributions. Some extra points of consideration, if you switch jobs, so like, for example, if you started a new career or a new job halfway through the year, you likely need to contribute more than you normally would because you only had half of a year if you didn't contribute to an employer plan prior. Can I give a quick caveat there too? Yeah, add it. If you had two employee, if you had two employers during the year, you're only allowed to put in twenty thousand five hundred plus a sixty five hundred catch up if you're over fifty. That's your elective deferral. You can only do that amount between the two employers, but you are allowed to do the all in max at both. For example, if you put in twenty thousand five hundred, and let's say they matched another twenty thousand at job one. You put in 40000 That's great. At job two, you technically could put in uh, the entire portion as after-tax. So you could put in like $61,000 as after-tax. And if your plan allows that to be converted to Roth, um, you are allowed to, to do that. Yeah. So there's a lot of nuance and complexities. And so if you had an employment change, you want to be sp- specifically pay specific attention to that. Um, but ma- just making sure you're maxing out your employer plans is just lowest hanging fruit, really easy to do and really important you do because, you know, 1231 is the deadline for employee contributions. Can I do some quick call outs there? Yep. Okay. So with 401ks, number one, you know, should you do pre-tax or Roth, make sure you're getting the amount in there that you want. So if you're wanting to max out a pre-tax retirement plan, well, you do need to do that before December 31st. Uh, You probably, your HR department um, and your 401k custodian will likely need a week or so of time in order to change your contribution amount. So if you're listening to this in early December, I mean, you might need to consider right now uh, going ahead and, and making a change if it is needed in your situation, because you typically cannot change your contribution amount two days before payroll. Um, it, it typically takes a week or two um, to cycle through. So that's number one, just making sure you get the right amount in. Number two, if you are going to make after-tax contributions that can then be converted to Roth, um, also important to go ahead and really maximize that. And again, you might need some time. I want to say, and Jared, I'm flying off the cuff, just trying to use my memory here. I think ExxonMobil has a December 15th um, timeframe that you have to get that form in to do the additional after-tax that they then convert to Roth. So the Voya plan at ExxonMobil does a great job allowing you to do it and allowing you to put money in there as after-tax and and converts it to Roth. But there is a, a really strict time limit on getting that done. And then the other the other consideration there is, does your plan force you to manually go from pre-tax to after-tax? Um, and then is there a separate catch-up provision? So in other words, if you have to change your contribution amount, I know Baker Hughes was this way for a long time. 
where you had to, you might get your bonus in March, you might hit the pre-tax max, but then if you want to do after-tax, well, then you got to go change your contribution amount in the system. And now that we're at the end of the year, you might, after filling that up, you might need to change it back in order for January to get back on track with, with normal contributions. So, I think you can tell uh, there are there's way more complexity with 401ks than there honestly should be, but it is important that you you maximize it because, like Jared said, once the window's passed, you you can't go back and and fix old tax years. You can't fill up buckets that you missed. So you want to make sure those those buckets are are set to be filled. That's right. Um, and whether or not you do Roth or traditional, really a function of okay your tax situation. Um, so let's talk about. Let's talk about giving, right? So um, the way the tax code is, you can take an itemized deduction or a standard deduction. So the greater of the two. So included in the itemized deduction is charitable giving, mortgage interest, uh, state and local taxes, and a couple health, health expenses uh, over a certain percentage of your AGI and a couple of other smaller ones. But Justin, what do you think about, how should somebody think about giving and whether or not they need to do something uh, by the end of the year? So if you are single or married, when you when you file your tax return, that's going to be a consideration. What you're going to want to look for is what is your standard deduction amount? And is it possible for your itemized deductions to be substantially larger than your standard deduction? So a quick example there, if you are married filing a joint return uh, and you have a standard deduction of let's just round to $26,000. Well, the maximum of state and local taxes, so property taxes, you're you're not allowed to de- to deduct more than ten thousand. So let's say you have that ten thousand, and you're thinking about making charitable contributions, and if if mortgage interest gives you another five thousand, well, your charitable contributions probably need to be fifteen thousand or more in order to get any sort of material tax benefit for them. Because if your itemized deductions are 28,000, but your standard deduction is 26,000, that doesn't help you a whole lot. So that would make you want to look at your giving strategy and when you pay property tax and try to bunch those in, in, in multiple years. So maybe you do three years of charitable giving either this December or in January of next year to try and get a meaningful tax deduction. Because right now the standard deduction is high and you're capped on your property tax at 10000 And so understanding how far above the standard deduction can you go? And maybe you want to do that once every two or three years in order to give, get a big tax benefit and then not do any charitable giving in the odd years so that in that case, you can just capitalize on the standard deduction. Anything you'd add there, Jared? No, just income should like your income tax should really drive like the urgency related to this. So if you're in a really high tax bracket this year, it could make a lot of sense. Ooh. And if you're about to retire and you're in a 37% tax bracket now, you might want to consider doing your next 10 years worth of charitable giving using a donor advised fund. Different for every family, every individual, every situation. But those are questions you need to be asking and, and thinking about because that can be a huge tax difference. Yeah, too. And this will make one plug for the donor advised fund because like a lot of people who want to take advantage of this, this tax optimism, like this tax strategy, they're not comfortable with giving all the, all that substantial of an amount of, to charity this year with the donor advised fund, you give it to this charitable vehicle, which is the donor advised fund that you can later gift to charity, right? So to take advantage of the strategy, you know, if you use a donor advised fund, you don't necessarily have to relinquish control and give all the money 
to the charities this year, but you can commit it to charitable purposes and just front load uh, the benefit from being able to itemize. So that's something that's definitely interesting uh, and, and impacts could impact your your tax picture. That's well put. I'm trying to think, are there any other little details to mention with deductions and, and planning around those? Ooh, uh, what should you give, Jared? What what things should you give to charity? Appreciated stock um, or appreciated assets because stock is one type of asset, but appreciated assets because the uh, embedded capital gain uh, it can potentially be avoided. So instead of gifting cash, uh, gift low basis stock, uh, maybe from you know stock that you've had for sitting in a brokerage account for decades with a large embedded gain. That's a great candidate in terms of, of, of what to gift because you could potentially avoid the uh, avoid the capital gains related to that transaction. Charity gets the full value of the stock that's gifted uh, and then you get the full value of that donation for tax purposes. And uh, let's not talk about this now, but let's just put an asterisk so we don't forget. If you're using the donor advice fund, pretty important to communicate properly with your CPA there. We have seen some uh, uh, mishaps there. And so we'll come back to that. Yeah. Justin, let's talk about um, what what else? So, uh, Roth conversions. Uh, let's talk about Roth conversions because that's another one where uh, there's a little more time sensitivity and the deadline is 1231. Yes. Okay. Perfect example of use it or lose it. If you're in a super low tax bracket this year and you're wanting to fill up 12%, 22%, 24%, if you have huge IRA assets, then that needs to be done, but we need to we need to define what the word done means, Jared, because you can't you can't start this process on on twelve thirty one. How long does it typically take to execute a Roth conversion? I would say answer it depends, but usually a couple of business days, right? So um, I wouldn't wait till the last week to do it because everyone waits till the last week, and so. Uh, there's custodians that process that paperwork. So if a Roth conversion is something you want to do, most of the time you can't do it. You can request it and then have it done by the custodian. Um, but there's a big backlog and a lot of year-end urgency. So I would try to do it mid-December just to avoid that. And sometimes custodians, even to front-run the front-run the mania of year-end, they'll say, hey, if, if, if year-end requests aren't submitted by 1214 or 1218 it'll be it'll be executed on a best efforts basis so you have till the end of the year but it actually needs to be processed internally which means you need to give yourself some leeway so i would i would target mid december at the latest yes so if you have investment accounts chances are they're probably held at td ameritrade charles schwab or fidelity those are the three largest custodians and i uh, have worked for one of those custodians before And I bet you can guess, when do most employees of of those investment firms, when do most employees take vacation time? Right about the time all these Roth conversions need to get done. That's right. And so that is why your custodian may tell you, if you do not get this initiated by 1218 or 1223, uh, whatever the case may be, it may not get done. Um, and so you need to be aware of that and make sure you're not initiating this on 1229. And then all of a sudden you get a massive Roth conversion that was done on January 2nd. Uh, and that completely, yeah, the IRS, you know, is, is, is not going to be friendly to that if you were trying to do something different. Yeah. And I mean, with Roth conversions, right, we've talked ad nauseum about them, but so I won't get into why we do them because, you know, we have other episodes that talk specifically about that, but this strategy is typically seasonal, 
right? Like it is usually when it makes the most sense is post-retirement pre-RMD social security, right? So if you're in that window, there's a good chance it makes sense because your income's really low. Um, There's extenuating circumstances and nuances there, but this isn't typically a strategy that you say, hey, I'm going to do Roth conversions indefinitely. Uh, it's a season. So it's really income tax specific. So I, just because you heard it and it makes sense, we've had clients come to us and say, Hey, I want to do a Roth conversions and, and it makes no sense. Um, so just think, just take a step back and think about, okay, what does my lifetime tax rate look like? And this is a good, are there some low brackets where I can lock in some income and get some cash converted? That's right. So to be specific, uh, maybe you retire on the young side and your Roth conversion window is age 56 to 72. Let's say you retire at age 64. Your Roth conversion window is probably age 65 to 70 or 72. But again, it is a opportunity that that could be a six or seven figure difference in your lifetime tax rate. So it's important to get it right, but it's also important to not overdo it and pay way too much in taxes today and without ever seeing a benefit. That's right. Okay. Any any other things that are actually time sensitive? Because we are going to talk about some more year end planning opportunities, but it's kind of like it's almost like a misnomer because they're not, you know, you actually have till the tax filing deadline. But before we jump into some of those things, you want to talk about, I guess the oh, the only other thing we need to talk about, it's kind of connected to IRA contributions, but backdoor. Um, and then we can probably use that to segue into the next. Perfect. So man, this is such a great example of how you know, our, our tax code is a little bit more complex than it needs to be. Um, because we have already talked about retirement plans. We've already talked about Roth and Roth conversion. And this is kind of a very, very closely related cousin of those things. If you are doing a backdoor Roth, and by the way, I just got done speaking about backdoor 401k Roth. This is different. This is backdoor Roth IRA. So if you are putting, let's say, $6,000 into an IRA and then converting it to a Roth IRA, the one year in planning item that is you know, pretty critical that you follow, um, if you did this on December 31st, there cannot be any money in an IRA. So on December 31st, if, if you put money in an IRA, then you converted it to a Roth IRA to do the backdoor Roth IRA contribution. On December 31st, there cannot be money in a pre-tax IRA. Jared, anything to add there? No, and the reason why there can't. So technically there can, but- oh, good point. There, there technically you, can be. But you could potentially be subject to double taxation. So what happens is if you make too much money, you can't contribute, uh, do traditional IRA contributions pre-tax. So you do an after-tax IRA contribution. And then if you do a Roth conversion, it considers the portion of after-tax money that you have and computes a tax a taxable uh, amount based on that. So you could be double. So it's essentially with after-tax IRA contributions, if any of that money's sitting in IRAs, you could potentially be double taxed. So it's, it's kind of complicated, but that's in red flashing lights, you should see double taxation. So it's kind of, confu- right? Once again, Justin, it's confusing because you have till the tax filing deadline uh, to make IRA contributions, but for calculation purposes of, of what's called the pro rata rule, uh, you you can't have any after tax uh, IRA assets, or you can, but you could potentially expose yourself to double taxation. Justin, if somebody does have after tax IRA assets, what can, is there anything they can do, or should they just avoid the strategy altogether? I was also going to bring up another point with this, which is you better understand that this applies to every IRA you have across multiple custodians. So if you do the backdoor Roth at Vanguard. But you have another IRA at Charles Schwab. 
that IRA at Charles Schwab counts. And that means that the pro rata rule will increase the taxes you pay on it. But Jared, what were you going to mention there? No, I was just going to mention that um, you could potentially roll over IRA into uh, 401k. Oh, yes. Great call. So you could roll that back into uh, a 401k, which is a qualified plan, which isn't looked at for pro rata purposes. Um, but then, right, you're getting into return on hassle. So if you have four different IRAs, you may have to do four different transactions just to get all the after-tax money out of there so that you can do $5,000 after-tax or uh, Roth, Roth contribution, uh, backdoor Roth. So it's like, okay, is, is that worth it? But so return on hassle is a component there, but there is there are things you can do if you know you get close to year end. But those things it take administratively a while. So, you know, those are things you want to get on now if you do want to do them. I'm glad you mentioned return on hassle there because, you know, if you are making eight, nine hundred thousand dollars a year or more, I, I do think it is worth asking the question, is a six thousand dollar backdoor Roth, you know, worth the amount of hassle? Um Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. That answer is different for every person, but uh, it's certainly something to consider. Awesome. Well, let's let's pivot and talk because we kind of talked about backdoor IRA. We talked about pro rata. So the co- computation for, okay, you know, what percentage of this is taxable or not. That after-tax IRAs need to be cleaned out by 1231. But Justin, when do you have to make your IRA contributions? What's the deadline? Well- it's the tax filing deadline, which used to be a little bit easier. You know, obviously in the last few years, that's been, I think it's been like a different date in three of the past four years, but it's the tax filing deadline. So you can make IRA contributions the next year and that's completely okay. Anything you'd add there, Jared? I think HSAs are the same way. So for traditional IRA contributions, Roth IRA contributions and health savings accounts, you have until the tax filing deadline to make these, um, which... I think is an underutilized thing. I think a lot of people think it needs to be done in the calendar year, but uh, you know, it, in, in a lot of instances, it makes more sense to wait, see how taxes actually shake out and what opportunities are available before you make those contributions, right? Um, having more information make, helps you make a more educated decision, right? So a great example of this is if you're close to the Roth IRA cutoff for when, whether you can make contributions directly or not, it might be good to just wait till the end of the year and see how your AGI shakes out. And then make the contribution versus assuming that it's going to, assuming you'll be eligible to make Roth, making the contribution, and then realizing your income was too high because of something you didn't anticipate, and then having to undo that. So I, you know, you have till the tax filing deadline. I actually like waiting until the tax filing deadline. But the only thing, the only problem with having until the tax filing deadline is it makes things kind of wonky from a reporting perspective, right? So uh, a 5498 usually shows IRA contributions as an IRS document. That typically isn't given until closer to the end of the year. So if so if you hit if you hit Jan one and you say, Hey, I want to get my tax return done as soon as possible, and then your CPA does it in February, and then in April you decide to do IRA contributions for last year, then your tax return's incorrect, right? So and and then if you make January so from January to April, you could also make IRA contributions for last year or the preceding year. So you also need to keep good records of, okay, which year did I make these IRA contributions for? So there's a lot of opportunity that's opened up, but it also creates a lot of administrative uh, complexity and a lot of potential points for error. Quick example on this, you know, let's say that you're filing a married tax return, your uh, household total income is around $200,000 a year. Well, that happens to be right at about the Roth IRA limit. So it's helpful to just do your tax return in February or March 
or early April. Once your tax return is complete, then you're able to, to really figure out a white and black answer. Uh, am I able, am I eligible to make Roth IRA contributions? And so doing that instead of you know, the opposite, which would be, well, we had a little bit more income than we expected, and now I'm no longer eligible to do Roth contributions, but I already did them. Um, so I need to need to correct them. That's a that's a little bit of a hassle. So that could be a great reason to um, do what you just said there. But this really kind of gets into our last point, which is, you know, communicating with your CPA, right? Because this is where we see a potential breakdown of of information, right? The strategies you enact are only as valuable as the tax documents you get your CPA, right? So if you do all this stuff, but the CPA doesn't know you did this stuff, then it's not going to be reflected in your tax return. And then you're going to have to look at it with a fine tooth comb to make sure that the plans that are executed are reflecting in your tax plan. And why that matters is because, right, we talked about seasonality related to some of these strategies. Charitable gifting, you likely, uh, if you're lumping it together to take big itemized deductions, you likely won't be doing that every year. So your CPA is not going to know to ask for it if you've never done it before, if you decided to do a big one this year. Um, Roth IRA contributions, if you wait up until the tax filing deadline, you know, the 5498 won't won't get to the CPA until after the tax filing deadline. So you need to work with them to make sure that that information is being reflected correctly and that the contributions are being allocated to the correct year. Uh, Justin, what other potential breakdowns have you seen? Yes. Um, if you bunch charitable contributions and, and do a donor advice fund, there is an additional form necessary. Jared, what is it, like 82 or 62 something? I can't remember the exact number of the IRS form, but... Uh, this form, it's pretty simple and it shouldn't be overly complex, but you do need to know when did you purchase the original uh, investment that you're giving to charity? What was your cost basis on that on that investment? And what was the manner in which it was given? How do you know the value of it? And it's pretty simple. And the IRS spells out, hey, if this was a publicly traded security, here's what you need to put there. But we have reviewed those and, and, and seen you know, pretty not fun uh, errors that have to be corrected. And so important to kind of be on the same page there. And I mean, Jared, I think that's that's also just kind of a big reason why uh, at, at part of our offering, we try to incorporate um, tax returns so that there's a little bit more communication between your advisory team and your tax team to try and alleviate some of those difficulties. Yeah. When there's fluctuation in the documents and the plans, right? Some What you're executing on year to year, uh, there's a high potential for error, right? Because CPAs, uh, they're really great, but a lot of them do tax preparation. So basically take your documents and put them in the machine versus tax planning, which is kind of proactively thinking about your lifetime tax rates and trying to optimize it. So if you're, that's one of the big reasons we review tax returns is optimization opportunities, but also just execution integrity, basically making sure that what is being reflected in the tax return is what was executed, right? Because uh, a lot of times the CPAs aren't the one recommending these strategies. So they don't know to ask for documents. And, and we've we've reviewed many a tax return that's been missing, uh, missing related items to uh, planning strategies that were recommended. So there should be some level of coordination because- uh, there's, it's, it's ripe for ripe for potential error because the CPA is not actively involved in the strategies recommended uh, throughout the year. And you, you, Jared, you think about uh, family gifting. If you have, you know, let's say more than four or five million dollars, but less than twenty five million, 
you probably should consider gifting some assets to family because you don't have an estate tax problem today, but you probably will have an estate tax problem at some point in the next 15, 20 years. Uh, but when you gift assets to family, sometimes it needs to be uh, reported. Sometimes it does not need to be reported. Sometimes it's taxable. Sometimes it's not. So there needs to be you know, really consistent messaging and you know, if you do something, you want to make sure it is reflected on your tax return properly. And sometimes there's a amount you can give to family that needs to be reported, but it's not taxable. And then other times there's there's you need to do a completely separate, you know, gift tax return, uh, depending on the amount you give, when you give it, and what you give. All of those factors come into play, but you just want to make sure you're not uh, doing it flippantly and, and setting up, you know, a mess down the road. Yeah. Dialogue. Dialogue matters here, right? And ideally dialogue should be existing between your advisor and uh, your CPA. And so that at a 10,000 foot level is uh, everything. Justin, you got anything before we wrap up? I think that covers it. That's great. If you're listening to this, you know, Kansas State is taking on TCU in the Big 12 championship game, probably right before this comes out. So go Cats. And I think that's all I've got. And if you missed us on the YouTube video, I got a new background. Uh, we moved into the house uh, right before Thanksgiving. And so we're still getting settled in. And Justin and I are both wearing matching black vests. So if you're just listening to us on audio, you're missing out on all the treats. Uh, if you have any questions or ideas for future episodes, podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. You can subscribe or connect with us at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Or send ideas for future episodes to podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed during this show or episode should be viewed as investment, legal, and tax advice. If you have questions pertaining to your specific situation, please consult the appropriate qualified professional.